Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of the Sight Black Women Podcast. I'm delighted today to welcome my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ashley Farmer, to our studio. Professor Ashley Farmer is currently an assistant professor in the Departments of History and African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Her book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era, is the first comprehensive study of black women's intellectual production and activism in the black power era. She is also the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition, and Dr. Farmer's scholarship has appeared in numerous venues, including The Black Scholar, The Journal of African American History, and her research has also been featured in several popular outlets, including Vibe, NPR, and The Chronicle Review. Dr. Farmer earned her BA from Spelman College, an MA in History, and a PhD in African American Studies from Harvard University. So once again, welcome, Dr. Farmer. Thank you. It's good to have you here. It's 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 wonderful because you just started here at mm-hmm. UT, and um, it it's it's funny because I don't get a chance to see you very often, yeah. and I like I'm happy that we're able to have this time because I get to talk to you more about your book and talk yeah. to you more about about your work, which I've respected for quite some time. Oh, thank you. And so even before you got here to UT, I knew who you were. Um, I followed you on Twitter <laughs> and and I've really, really enjoyed your work. In fact, I, I feel like that's the way that many people get to know you um, mm-hmm. is through your social media pre- presence mm-hmm. and particularly your work with the African-American Intellectual History Society. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to start off by having you talk a little bit about that yeah. and about um, that particular project and, and all of the wonderful things that it's doing right now. Oh, man. Um, yeah, it's getting uh, bigger by the year, I feel like. Um, so the African-American Intellectual History History Society, which we shortened to AAIHS, is um, started as a blog in 2014. Uh, one of my colleagues named Chris Cameron, who works at UNC Charlotte, um, thought it would be a good way for us to, those of us who talk about um, Black intellectual history, Black thought, very, very broadly conceived, um, could come together in kind of an online space and talk about it. So um, it started with, you know, maybe 10 or 15 of us blogging, and um, it kind of took off. Um, and so now, you know, about four or five years later, not only do we have a blog that posts usually a book review and like an original piece of research every single day. Um, also, we have a conference that we do once a year um, offline. This year, we just finished in Ann Arbor and next year it's here at the oh, University wow. of next Texas at Austin. Uh-huh. That's in March. amazing. Um, and then um, in addition to that, um, we also try to fund research. Um, so we offer a book prize, an article prize, and then um, we fund three to four scholars, particularly one um, that is an HBCU specifically, um, to do work on Black intellectual history broadly conceived. So we kind of think of it as like a great place to have online conversations, a great way to like dip your toe in the water of history if you're not, you know, a full-on historian, but have wide-ranging interests and kind of a way for us to talk to each other across um, institutional barriers, but also across kind of time barriers in that way. Absolutely. I, I really, one of the things I love about it um, is the way that it has popularized Black history um, online, and particularly in social media. And I feel like the the blog format has allowed you all to really bring snippets 
of your research and of stories that people may not know about Black history into the fore. Um, and, and, and for me, that's just so important. And I think that particularly one of the things I've respected about that work is the way that it centered Black women's history in particular. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, one of the things that we really try to do in the blog is make sure we are not only featuring Black women, but also featuring Black women as thinkers, you know, and that means broadly conceived. So, um, you know, we have scholars of early America. We have modern scholars like me. Um, and we try to either sometimes talk about an individual person's thinking or activism or talk about, say, how a group of women are conceiving something like blackness or freedom mm-hmm. um, in really kind of broad ways. And then sometimes we do whole features just on a particular woman. Um, for example, recently we did one on Queen Mother Audley Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and each, um, you know, it's a week-long series where a different scholar, sometimes those who knew the activists if they were around, or those who speak about her or write about her um, and talk about different aspects of their thought process and their kind of the interrelationship between thought process and organizing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like it, like you said, because it really does give you a chance to highlight individual black women, but it also um, really pushes this idea that we should understand black women as people who have an analysis of the world Mm -hmm. and articulate it in a variety of different ways um, and hardly ever apolitical or or anti-intellectual, which is the way black women are kind of really always conceived, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I think that it's that emphasis on black women's intellectual contributions Mm -hmm. that I think is really beautiful um, because, you know, one of our core principles is to incorporate black women into the core of your syllabus. Mm -hmm. And people often ask me, well, what does that mean? And one of the things that I think it means is really using the way that black women see the world to to fundamentally shape how we shape our theory or thinking about how black women's contributions help us to re-theorize the world. Mm -hmm. And in order for you to do that, you have to get a sense of our intellectual contributions, which are holistic Mm -hmm. and not just about, you know, a passing citation or just the fact that we were born on this day or or we did this particular act, but the way that we're contributing in in dynamic ways. And I think that this notion of intellectual history and black intellectual history and black women's intellectual history in particular, to me, is just so radical and so important, particularly in this moment. Um, There's a way that you all go very deep. And I think that that is something that we need right now in this kind of, you know, 258 character, mm-hmm. you know, society. Yeah. And that talking about that actually leads me to my next question, which is how is it that you got interested in black women's history? That I took, you know, a very long and winding road. Um, and, I, and I always like telling this story because I think um, I want to emphasize um, intellectual curiosity and a lack of um, kind of a linear time frame Mm, in life and how you think your life's going to come out one way and it turns out in really great ways in another. Um, So I... um I grew up in a home where, you know, bedtime stories were about black women. Yeah. Mm. Um, I grew up in a home where uh, my mother worked and was a doctor, a medical doctor, and my father stayed at home. And I grew up in a home where, um, you know, women around me were always um, thinking, telling stories and kind of moving and shaking. Um, But so it was kind of always embedded in me, but it took me a while to find that in that way. Um, You know, to give you just another example, both my parents went to Fisk University. Mm, I grew up in Nashville. Um, And um, every time, I had a research project. My only option was to go down to Fisk and do and use it. the Fisk archive. Right? They're like, you can choose from these things. I love it. <laughs> you know, I know what your classmates are going to write about, but you're going to write about one of these things. <laughs> you know, but my dad took me to the archive every wow. single day. You know what I mean? 
after school wow. to do that kind of work. But nonetheless, you know, you kind of um, chafe against that. So I actually started out pre-med. Mm. Um, and then I switched to being a French and Spanish major. Um, and that is actually what I graduated from college with. And um, But in the time that I was studying French and Spanish at Spelman, and one of the things I love about Spelman is that, you know, every discipline is done from a black woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you may take one class on, you know, French literature, but the rest of the stuff is on, you know, the writings of women from all of the French colonies and same for Spanish as well. Um, And I I went and lived in Martinique in Costa Rica as part of my study abroad. And I lived with black women there, right? And in black women's families and in in their communities. Um, So it was from there that I really realized that, um, you know, know, the language is important for me to be able to communicate with them, but the questions and my interests really driving are how did they get there? What is their worldview? How are they shape these things? Um, so I ended up only honestly taking a history class at the very end um, with Jelani Cobb, actually. Wow. Um, okay. And and he really helped push me on the path to graduate school in that particular way. Um, so when I entered graduate school, I really I knew I wanted to study Black women's history. I thought largely of the Caribbean at first, and obviously again is time goes by, you move in different directions. Um, So I guess I would say that it it was always there, but it took me a little while to understand kind of um, how it could answer the questions I was asking about the world, you know, Mm. in that particular way. Yeah. So I have a question. Yeah. um, And it's a question that just came up from from thinking about these stories, which are really beautiful. I love the stories that you're telling about your childhood. Um, and about the archives and about Fisk. Mm-hmm. I lived in Nashville for a little while, oh, okay, and so I'm familiar that. with Fisk, yeah. and so that warms my heart. And, and you talked about Fisk, and I thought about Diane Nash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that you talked about was going to the archives. Mm-hmm. Who was the first Black woman whose story kind of seduced you in the archives? Who was the first Black woman that really piqued your interest in the archives, oh, if you can remember? Um, let's see. So I did a bunch of... so. If I'm being honest, my eighth grade report was about um, uh, Josephine Baker. Oh, wow. which, Who had a birthday yes, just a couple yes, of days. Yes, exactly. So if she were alive, That's right? where, you know, again, mm-hmm. and, and um, I should emphasize this too, which is, I think, a really interesting point to talk about in in, in black women's intellectual trajectory. My mother was a history major mm. and loved history, but life would never allow for her to do what mm. I do for a living. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There were yeah, there were just definitely. other ways in which, you know, a, a, a life of being a historian, let alone a black woman professional historian, just was not mm-hmm. ever going to be an option to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is somebody who taught me to go to the archive and to dig deep in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so she taught me how to research. She had me calling people and asking them about Josephine Baker <laughs> in the I days before it. the internet, right? I love it. <laughs> um, in that way. Um, but the first person who really seduced me in terms of kind of graduate level or kind of um, more professional work was Francis Beale. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I was actually in an African-American intellectual history class in grad school. And I did my end of the year project on the Third World Women's Alliance. Again, trying to combine this interest in French, Spanish, Caribbean colonialism, right? And um, and in black intellectual history. But the way, I mean, in France, you know, still around to this day. She mm-hmm. lives in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way Fran can break down a worldview for you, um, the way that she can offer you this kind of... Um, really high level analysis, but bring it down into a story about a black woman's life Mm. and make it make sense, I think is one of her gifts. and then, you know, because she's around, I spoke to her and she she invited me into her home. Yeah. I sat at her kitchen table. She talked to me about um, her thought process mm-hmm. um, and how stuff. And she is one of several women who encouraged me to kind of um, move in the direction of thinking about black women, black power, black intellectualism in that way. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I think it's beautiful the ways that our writing as black women mm-hmm. is often an extension of our mentorship, mm-hmm. um, even when we don't know the person. Mm-hmm. And so you got to know her. Yeah. But I 
obviously yeah, she yeah. kind of became your mentor yeah. through her writing. Yeah. And then it was through that that you mm-hmm. got to know her. And mm-hmm. I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. And she also taught me how to to look differently, you know? Like, mm. you can't always see, you're not trained to see black women in the places, and particularly black women's intellectualism in the mm. places where. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So she kind of clued me in how to look differently. Give me think, an example of that, because I think that's yeah. something that our listeners are really interested yeah. in and are trying to learn about. So how do you look differently? So, I mean, um, a perfect example is this, and this is something I was really a big part of the process of writing my first book. Um, let's take something like the Black Panther Party. Mm-hmm. I had looked through the Black Panther newspaper 10,000 times mm. in the process of trying to figure out how I could talk talk about black women. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I have been so trained to look for a certain type of article mm-hmm. or a certain type of way in which thought is expressed, mm-hmm. which is usually male dominated and often mimics white men, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. Um, that I'd overlooked the artwork, right? Yeah. Um, or I'd overlooked, um, you know, the poetry or the sisters section, which was just about um, black women, you know, mm-hmm. writing in. Mm-hmm. Um, or um, in the case of another group I study in the book, um, I'd overlooked a handbook, you know, mm. where the first half of the handbook was all about kind of kowtowing. The second half of the handbook was all about how they were rebelling, you know? Right. Um, so, and um, yeah, it was just kind of fit into nooks and crannies. Mm. And, and like when I was visiting with Fran, she was like, it's all there. Go back and look again. Mm, that's Go really back beautiful. and look again. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned your book because your book, Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era with UNC Press, has won a number of awards, including honorable mention for the Darlene Clark Hine Award and honorable mention for the Letitia Woods, excuse me, Letitia Woods Brown Memorial Book Award. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book and its contributions? Yeah, so... Um, Remaking Black Power really charts um, the rise and fall of the Black Power movement through um, Black women's assessment of political ideologies. So kind of the two driving questions are, um, why did a Black woman choose to join one group versus the other? And how did they kind of kind of meld what the group was trying to do politically and ideologically with their own priorities as Black women, mm-hmm. specifically? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it starts out in the 40s and 50s with women who I think laid the groundwork for Black power. These are usually kind of women who have been through the fire of the post-war era, maybe former communist, et cetera, mm-hmm. maybe have Garveyite lineages. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a couple of examples of, um, you know, big, well-known organizations like the Pan Panthers or the Congress of African People, and then it moves abroad. Mm-hmm. It talks about um, Black women's conception of self mm-hmm. um, in the Pan-African context mm-hmm. and visiting Africa, and then it ends actually with the group Fran started um, the Third World Women's Alliance. Wow. Yeah, um, but it was actually written in reverse. Right, I started with Fran and the Third World Women's Alliance, and it was her and other women in that book that encouraged me to look backwards. Mm, that's really beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, so, kind of the goals of it, like, are um, just to prove how pervasive Black power was for Black women and how attractive it was for Black women. Um, Mm -hmm. We often think that it was very male-dominated, so women had a couple of options. You either just stuck with the sexism or you went and joined wider Black feminist organizations. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is there was a third really viable option, and that was to go into these organizations but also to push them to be more equitable and more gender-conscious in the process. And... um, You see, to varying degrees, black women's success in that. But it was interesting to them. Black power provided something for them. Mm, mm. I think that's, you know, there's so many important points there. And I think that one of them is this whole idea or this misconception that we have that black radicalism is a masculine thing, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We think about the black power era Mm -hmm. and we immediately think about the men, Mm -hmm. right? And we can all name the men off the top of our heads. 
Um, but in many ways, our conceptualization of Black power is 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 skewed um, in a direction that is that doesn't really reflect the the dynamic reality of how Black power operated mm-hmm. in the everyday, right? And who was doing the everyday work, et cetera. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit more about how Black women shaped the Black power era. I know you mentioned the artwork mm-hmm. and you mentioned the workshops, um, but what are some of the things that you wish that people knew about Black women's role in the Black Power era. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I wish people knew that it wasn't um, something that popped up all of a sudden in the sixties and seventies, right? Mm. Um, but rather, it was kind of a sustained commitment to a core set of principles, mm-hmm. and that Black women popularized those principles even before, um, you know, the kind of sixties and seventies. I mean, here I'm thinking of um, somebody like a Claudia Jones or mm-hmm. a Queen Mother Moore, Absolutely. who was advocating for self determination, um, for Pan Africanism, um, for the right to self defense, for separatism in many ways um, in the 40s and 50s, well Mm -hmm. before, you know, the rise of that. Um, I'd also like them to see that Black women were really part of every aspect of Black power organizing. And sometimes that meant, you know, on the local block, you know, Mm -hmm. organizing for community control. Mm -hmm. But that also meant being a part of these organizations that we know so well. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we put approximately about two-thirds of the rank and file of the Panther Party as being women by 1970. And they really were running it post-1970, mm-hmm. um, but still kind of the image in our mind in the pictures that we see are all men in, you know, black leather jackets and mm-hmm. black berets. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want them to see how, um, you know, just kind of pervasive in, in, in all the levels that black women were engaging in. And then finally, I think I want them to see that black power and black feminism are not as oppositional as um, we often make them. Um, And by that, I mean that um, certainly the practice sometimes didn't come out right, Right. but the ideas behind what is a Black feminist practice and what a Black nationalist practice is are not so um, kind of mutually exclusive. Mm. And that Black women were really pushing that within the Black power movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And the book really, in a lot of ways, is a history of intersectionality through Black power. Mm. Um, It starts with somebody like Claudia Jones who talked about the triple oppression of Black women, which, you know, and it ends with Frances Beale who, you know, is talking about intersecting oppressions, you Mm. know, and talks Mm -hmm. about how Black women were saying that any vision of Black power has to be race, class, and gender conscious all at the same time, no matter where they were working, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, it's also kind of, an intellectual genealogy of that mm-hmm. kind of concept. Mm-hmm. There's something yeah. really wonderful about that because I think that when we're talking about Black feminism, right, mm-hmm. and for those of us that, that that teach or read Black feminism widely, we know that intersectionality and the notion of interlocking forms of oppression that comes mm-hmm. from the Kambahi River Collective statement, those are the things that we usually associate with, with Black feminism. Mm-hmm. But it is very, very rare that you hear people talk about and describe Black radicalism in that way mm-hmm. um, and Black power in that way. Although ab- you're absolutely right. That is the the fundamental uh, guiding principle mm-hmm. of Black radicalism mm-hmm. and has been for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's, it's such important work that you're doing to really kind of demystify this idea that somehow Black feminism in- is intersectional mm-hmm. and then Black power is this revolutionary masculine thing yeah. that is yeah. completely separate from that. Yeah. Right? You know, like I said, in theory, it doesn't always shake out in practice, but I think one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is that there's no point in no aspect of the movement where where black women are not basically offering an intersexual analysis and trying to push their male counterparts towards it. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. In some way. And and in some cases really, really successful at it. The Panthers being, 
you know, one of the foremost. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's I had the pleasure of um, being on a panel with Erica Huggins uh, yeah. a few weeks ago or actually a few months ago at this point and um, really thinking about the, the Black the Black Panther Breakfast Program mm-hmm. um, and the ways that she was instrumental in, in articulating that and thinking about how this notion of a holistic um, radicalism or a holistic uh, approach to liberation mm-hmm. really kind of starts from this basic concept that Black people have a dynamic community and we need to address all aspects of mm-hmm. that community in mm-hmm. order in order to really to really seek out some form of um of whole life right yeah. and i think that that's something that to me is always in the back of my mind um even though as you said this image and i think that there's to me i don't know to me i think the hypermasculinization of black power in the popular imagination has a lot to do with the ways that that black power has been um fetishized and demonized mm-hmm. over over the years. I think that's exactly right. And so, you know, to me those things kind of go mm-hmm. together. Um you mentioned earlier a, about the artwork. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go back to that beautiful illustration that you open your book with. It's Gail Dixon's art piece, Black Panther. And I wanted you to describe this piece for those who may not have seen it. And obviously, we want everybody to go out and read your book and and take a look at it. But as people are listening, can you describe it for them and talk to us a little bit about the importance of its symbolism? Yeah. So um, this is a great piece. Gail Dixon... um, was an artist who um, began in the Panther Party in Seattle and eventually moved to Oakland um, and still does, also still lives in Oakland and does great art to this day. Um, but it's this great image of um, probably like a middle-aged black woman. She's She's got an apron on. Um, she's got rollers in her hair. Mm-hmm. And she's kind of against a black frame. And there's a square around her, but she's kind of stepping out of that square. Um, she's certainly kind of framed as bigger than it. Um, and it's a mixed media image. So there's drawing, there's a little bit of painting. And then um, the woman is holding a bag from the free food program that the Panthers um, did in Oakland and um, in other cities writ large. And then also um, has a button that says Bobby Seal for mayor. Mm. Um, because by the early 1970s, the Panthers were engaging in electoral politics mm-hmm. as a way of kind of asserting community control. Um, and one of the great things is the caption. And I, I think if I can remember it right, it says, I mean, yes, I'm for voter education, registration, um, and anti the war in Vietnam, African liberation and the people's survival. Right. So one of the reasons I love that image is that um, it takes kind of the common trope of a black woman, um, either as a maid, domestic, the stereotype of rollers in your hair mm-hmm. and makes her, um, you know, and then the caption above basically makes her a revolutionary. You know, yeah. she's articulating a political message. Mm-hmm. She's articulating a worldview. She's saying these are the politics that I'm aligned with. Mm-hmm. And um and I'm proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's also certainly propagandistic in the sense that she's also engaging in these Panthers programs. But I think there's something pretty amazing about um, one of the most popular organizations of the time saying, you know, this woman, the woman on your block, basically. The woman on your block can be a Pan-Africanist. The woman on your block can be an ardent anti-imperialist. Mm. Um, the woman on your block can understand local level politics, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. um, and community programming. And it, so it really, really challenges this idea that, all of us can't understand the world and imagine a different one. Mm, yeah, really, that's really beautiful. And yeah. all of us 
are engaged in intellectual production, mm-hmm. right? There's no such thing as I'm always I'm always unsettled by this false dichotomy between mm-hmm. activism and mm-hmm. intellectualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when we think about revolutionaries, we tend to think about the organic intellectual, the one who um, is producing the ideas and and leading the movement, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a very masculinist understanding of how movements work. Mm-hmm. Um, but the image that, that for me was really quite striking and quite yeah. beautiful mm-hmm. um, to me is exactly what you just said. It, it's no, we we are the leaders that we have been waiting for, mm-hmm. right? We are the yeah. intellectuals that we have been waiting for, and we all have the capacity to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's such that's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. And any movement that's going to happen needs all of us to do that work. So it's no sense in kind of drawing this dichotomy between these intellectuals over here. Absolutely. Yeah. No, definitely. Now, one of the questions that that I have for you, kind of building off of that, um, is about the politics of citation, right? Mm -hmm. And and obviously, cite black women is about the politics (laughs) of citation and acknowledging black women's intellectual production. Yeah. Um, But as a specialist in black women's history, how do you see the politics of citation kind of intersecting with the work that you do? Yeah. So. This one is an interesting one because I feel like there's two things going on. Um, There's this idea that uh, people who do black women's history, in particular black women who do black women's history, um, I guess aren't exactly always engaging in history, Mm, you know? Um, That's interesting. And so um, one of... most people are very receptive to the book, but um, I do get some pushback in saying what I'm doing is not really intellectual history or what I'm doing is not really I'm that. appalled. But yeah, you know what I mean? And so, you know, and you know what people mean is that it doesn't look like what I'm comfortable with it looking like. And mm. I don't like the way that you're challenging that because then that makes me rethink mm-hmm. how I have to do it. But how that trickles down then is because it's not seen as part of the canon in the same way. Mm -hmm. Then it's not cited in the same way. Mm. Um, And as a result, um, you know, we keep kind of marginalizing not only the women thinkers themselves that we're trying to kind of address historically, but also then the women thinkers today. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think it's compounded by the fact that like as a discipline, um, I think there's a way in which we're taught not to cite ourselves and each Mm, other. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. I mean, I go to town. I love it. I have zero I love problems it. with it. I'm like, oh, this is a great time for me to mention that I wrote this. <laughs> and I wrote this other thing too. Yeah. Um, but part of that is 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 me doing the work of making making things visible. Um, me saying that, you know what, there's no it's okay for a mm. black woman to be an expert in this little corner of the store. I'm not mm-hmm. claiming it, you know, anywhere mm-hmm. place that I am, but mm-hmm. if I've if I've done the work, I should be able to bear that out. Um, I also think it's important to I often go back through at the end. And, and say, okay, where else can I fit another black woman? <laughs> sometimes I love it. I'm like, ooh, I got an extra four, you know, 50, 60 words. I can cite so-and-so and so-and-so in here. <laughs> but because I understand how that translates right. into, you know, and into um, you know, and how that makes black women legible within the discipline. So I go back and forth about it because um, part of me is like, whatevs, I don't need to be, I don't do this work to be legible to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, mm-hmm. I understand that without making that somewhat legible, um, it becomes difficult for the people who I want to read it to access it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important project in and of itself mm-hmm. um, because of that. And and honestly, I mean, that's kind of what Fran does in her conversations. Absolutely. All this stuff, you know, she said, go back and look at this. I wrote mm-hmm. this here. I wrote that. That's her engaging in the politics of mm-hmm. citation. It's just orally to me. Absolutely. And then she's asking me to bear that out you know, in the written record. Absolutely. It's interesting because I think that Black women historians Mm -hmm. in particular are leading the way in terms of citational politics Mm -hmm. and in terms of really kind of 
recentering how we think about Black women's intellectual contributions. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question that actually comes out of the discussion that we just had about kind of grassroots um, engagement. And one of the things that, you know, we're often faced with um, as Black women who are writing in the academy, mm-hmm. we already face challenges in, the, in terms of citation. Mm-hmm. People not citing us, people mm-hmm. not acknowledging the work that we've done, people not acknowledging our genealogies, etc. Um, But I think that that is triply the case for Black women who are engaging in some sort of intellectual production but are not publishing. Mm -hmm. How do we as researchers who care about Black women's political lives and intellectual production, how do we do justice, citational justice, to those Black women who are organizing on the streets, Mm -hmm. who are doing this work in the everyday? Um, How do we do that work in addition to citing in the familiar ways that we're taught in the academy? Mm I can think of a couple ways off the top of my head. I mean, one comes from um, social media. The reality mm. is, is the more people read my tweets than probably will ever read. Right. Book, and that's okay. You know what I mean? Um, but then there's a way in which I can be purposeful about how I highlight their work. Mm-hmm. There's ways in which I can um, retweet, foreground, mm-hmm. tag, make aware of their work. Um, and then that kind of creates an archive of documentation that is accessible to everybody and mm-hmm. is not behind paywalls, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I think AAIHS is doing some of that work by featuring blogs. Um, we hope to move more into the video realm as well soon, oh, wow. mm-hmm. um, um, both podcast and video. So then hopefully we are able to go and do these kinds of interviews and just document their lives and just put it up there for the record, mm-hmm. you know, so that's the case. And mm-hmm. then um, in my previous institution, I was working um, with an archivist there. Um, one of the things I think institutions can offer is kind of storage space and server space, if that makes sense. Oh, you know interesting. what I mean? Yeah. And so there's a way in which um, there are, um, we just need to digitize it or pull it together, right. not necessarily for it to be for the institution, but just for it to have a space. And sometimes that's a really um, difficult institutional and financial burden to overcome. Right. Um, so I think there's a way where um, it's a minimal cost to the institution, but you could just scan, document, interview, and just put up and make accessible mm-hmm. and just be really just is housed on a server there um, to be able to um, allow them to keep this archive themselves and people to mm-hmm. use it writ mm-hmm. large. Um, and then, you know, another thing is kind of just collecting interviews mm-hmm. of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a it's a fraught concept um, sometimes because of institutional holdings, but right. um, but there are ways to make that very very accessible. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of ways. But mm-hmm. I think I I think the oral tradition is is a great one and one that we I think. We're just now getting okay. As, as historians are saying, like maybe everything's impartial and, right. and biased. So why should we be saying that oral interviews are any more right. so? Right. And just letting it be that way. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So these are the surprise questions. Okay. Even though right. I kind of snuck in some surprise questions before, but these are surprise questions. Okay. I thought I, I smelled a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to end by asking a couple of fun questions to leave us on a high note. Okay. Um, and the first one is, is pretty mundane, but extremely important. And that is what projects are next and what are you most excited about? Oh, man. Um, okay. I I think I can say this now. I am looking towards a biography of Queen Mother Moore. Oh, wow. Um, but Queen Mother Moore does not have an archive. Interesting. And she lived for 100 years. Wow. So I am trying to figure out how to write a history of someone who is everywhere at once. And Mm. I think single-handedly one of the biggest and most important black women in black radicalism, 
but lacks any form of, for the most part, formal documentation that legitimize their intellectualism. Mm. Right. Um, so um, I'm excited by that project of um, kind of figuring out how we talk about intellectual influence and intellectual spheres in the yeah. absence of traditional archives. Um, and also daunted by the task because she did a lot of things. Yeah. That is really exciting yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, I am a fan of Queen Mother Moore yeah. and have been for quite some time. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to that project. It's a long one. But yeah, so um, so yeah, like I said, she lived from 1898 to 1997. Um, mm-hmm. So, and... Um, Really was had a hand in everything. I, I sometimes I say I like to think of her as um, a spider web in some mm, ways. She holds the movement together, but you sometimes don't realize she's there until you either walk into her or the light hits her in a certain kind that's of way. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so the question is, how do you as a writer and as a historian illuminate that web? Mm, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And show all the ways in which she's connecting the world, mm. which I'm not sure how to do yet, but we'll I'm, get there. <laughs> I'm very excited about that, and I cannot yeah. wait to amplify it yes. when it comes out because that's going to be really, really, truly important work. Thank you. I think you've kind of answered this mm-hmm. next one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Okay. Um, and I'm I it, and I'm almost tempted to say say somebody you haven't said yet. Okay. Um, and that and the question is, which black woman inspires you the most, living or dead? Ooh, there's so many. Right. I know. <laughs> um, clearly, I'm a queen mother more stand. Otherwise, I wouldn't be. Obviously, yeah. This. Um, but I'm gonna put another one out there, which is May Mallory. Mm. who um, I write about a little bit. And um, there's a great uh, black woman historian named Paula Seniors who is doing a great biography of her as well Mm. that I hope will be out soon. Um, But Mae Mallory is um, kind of the quintessential unbossed and unbought before Shirley Chisholm. She's one of those people, kind of like Queen Mother Moore, who lived from the 20s through the 90s and was involved in, you know, kind of had her hand in everything. Um, And like, I don't know how to say it. She's like... She was just such a bad, like you know, like I. You can say You can say Yeah, she was just such a badass. Like I mean, I mean, like for, I'll, I'll give you a little tidbit. So, um, she is actually um, one of the first women to file a school desegregation suit in the North. Right. Mm, so in the same okay. year that Little Rock was happening, yeah. she was fighting school desegregation in the North. And if you look at the front page of the New York Times in 1957, mm-hmm. you'll see her and her daughter all because. And what city is this? Um, in New York City. Right. So her daughter wanted to attend um, a school with a college prep program. Mm. There were none in Harlem mm. because of, you know, the disparate um, resources. So she marched right down and, and enrolled her daughter on a, in a school on the Upper East Side. And then they kicked her out. She was like, bet. Wow. <laughs> and so she said, you're in violation of board versus, wow. versus the board of education. So I have the right to do this. But the great thing about this is, is as she's advocating and becoming um, kind of the front of this um, movement, they started a massive boycott of schools, et cetera. Mm. Um, she's always says, she's like, I don't want to, I don't really care about sitting next to white folks. Mm. Right. And this, this, this whole thing that you think is about integration for me is never about sitting next to white folks. I just want my kids to have the same opportunities as their kids. So wow. you can either let me go here or you can give the resources there, but somehow right. my kids are going to get what they need to get, you know, That's and that beautiful. kind of uncompromising, you know, I'm not trying to sit here and fit into your standards. I'm just trying to do what's due is kind of the thing that thrust her from you know the 20s to the 70s and she mm. was a really great activist in that way she called she often called herself a maladjusted negro oh i love it yes and so um <laughs> so yeah she was always saying that she was maladjusted because she would not adjust to mm. the way the world in which it was given to her oh wow yeah, so that's she was a, pretty badass yeah that's a great story yeah, see i love yeah. i love talking to historians <laughs> about these things because you always
always bring up gems that, yeah, that yeah. I I didn't know before. Yeah, yeah. So building on that and mm-hmm. our fun questions, mm-hmm. if you could assign a reading by a black woman to all of our listeners, which would it be and why? Oh my gosh. These fun questions are hard. There's so many choices. <laughs> That's why they're fun. Um, <laughs> Um, if anybody hasn't read Fran Beale's Double Jeopardy to be black and female, mm. that's probably um, a quintessential one. Um, I So like I mentioned, the Queen Mother Moore didn't really have an archive, but she wrote some great poetry oh, um, cool. uh, that I have found. Um, so some of that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think, I think uh, Fran Beale's Double Jeopardy is probably the quintessential piece that will sum up um, kind of the, the tensions that black women, particularly black women movement workers face in trying to, um, you know, assert what black power and black empowerment means for them and the ways in which, you know, men buying into capitalism and racism are thwarting that. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's yeah. great. I'm sure everybody's going to run out and, yes. and, and read it. So it is perhaps good. the most, I think it's probably the, one of the most anthologized readings of, mm. of Black women. So you can find it anywhere. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> That's beautiful. So, you know, we're coming up to the end of our time. And I want to know if there's anything else you would like to share with our listeners before we go or any other thoughts or, or ideas that you haven't been able to, to talk about yet. Oh, man. Um, I think that I would encourage them to do two things. One is um, whatever historical period or um, kind of scholarly field that you're focused on, um, chances are if you push a little bit further, you will find either black women actually acting or black women writing about it. Absolutely. So um, I guess I would encourage you to just kind of look and see um, and support in that particular way. There's Mm -hmm. always like one more layer. If you peel it back one more layer, you usually find all the black women. Mm. And to take the time to do that work of reading, listening, learning and whatever they're interested in and then amplify that mm-hmm. however they want mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thank you dr farmer thank that's you for beautiful having me. i fun. really appreciate yeah. you being here and yeah it's totally fun <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to today's episode of site black women follow us at site black women on twitter instagram and facebook and our new website www.siteblackwomencollective.org And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. <laughs>